0: This is Suchitra Vijayan, and you're joining us for the Polis Project's conversation series. Since 2017, Polis Project has hosted writers, thinkers, scholars, activists, and some of the remarkable public intellectuals of our time to discuss about some of the most important issues affecting the world today. So this year, we are moving our conversation series to a live recorded audience conversation. So today, we have a very important book that we're discussing. The book is called India's Undeclared Emergency, Constitutionalism and the Politics of Resistance. The book comes at an important moment, but also the book opens very clearly um, with a dedication. The book is dedicated to the BK-16 political prisoners, and it very clearly says that at the time of publishing, many of them are still incarcerated. The book is also dedicated to Father Sahan Swami, whose life is inspirational life, Embodied in the struggle to fulfill the promise of the constitution. And in this book, Arvind very clearly sets out to understand the present. The book starts with the emergency of 1975 and kind of goes to the roots of what this emergency is. But the real core of the book, in some ways, is to look at the past and understand the present, which is trying to understand the Modi era, which Arvind calls the undeclared emergency. But the book just doesn't stop with what the undeclared emergency is, it talks about a totalitarian future that might await us, but also ends with the idea of how do we resist this. And to join us to discuss this important book is the public scholar, lawyer, writer, and researcher, Aravind Ring. He has a uh, law degree from the National Law School of India and a master's from the Warwick uh, University of Warwick, where he was a and scholar. He's currently pursuing his PhD on mapping the elements of Ambedkar jurisprudence at the National Law School. He's, of course, the author of many books, and he was part of a team of lawyers challenging Section 377 of the IPC, right from the High Court in 2009 to the Supreme Court in 2018. Arvind, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sathitra, for having me.
0: Um, Arvind, I want to jump right in. The book very clearly, you open the book with an introduction where you say that the BJP's victory, both in 2014 and 2019, and their return to power poses a most serious challenge to the Indian constitutional order after the emergency. Before we talk about the present, talk to us about the emergency of 1995, 1997, and how this fundamentally um, changed the history of the Indian um, polity.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. For that question, and as you, Sajitra, as you indicated, in this book, the way I phrase it is to say that two ways in which we can understand the contemporary moment is through the lens of history, and one lens which history takes us to is the 1975 to 77 period. Again, we go back to contemporary scholarship. Uh, Tharunab Tharunab Kaitan's article called death by a thousand cuts, looking at the at the constitution the constitution suffering death by a thousand cuts he says the two moments of greatest democratic decline are the emergency of 75 to 77 and the contemporary era so that is the reason why we go back to the emergency point one, but the other point which I really want to make about what is the reason we go back to the emergency is to try and understand what was it like to be there during the time of the emergency. And again, I wasn't born, I wasn't, I was just about born around that moment in time. But what the the record of the Shah Commission and the work of the Shah Commission in particular indicates is that the what we the one way of understanding the emergency is a time when the state used uncontrolled power against its citizens. By uncontrolled power, I mean the right to the, the power of arrest of dissenting voices. And people who think differently. Again, one can argue that uncontrolled power to arrest might have been there in many periods in Indian history. But I think the significant point about the emergency is the fact that the arrests under the Maintenance of Internal Security Act were also accompanied by a collapse of all other institutions of accountability. By this, I mean that the judiciary failed. Most most powerfully, which is the ADM double poor judgment, which is seen as the low point of the Indian judiciary. The media failed. And again, we have a great testimony to that yeah. by, by LK Advani, who made the point that you asked to bend, but you crawled. And so the point about the emergency is the untrammeled power of the state, unconstrained by any kind of a any kind of a limit, as it were. And perhaps one more point I want to add about the emergency is the idea that the emergency was a time of great fear. I think that's to capture that is a very, very important dimension. And to capture that, I'll go back to actually a documentary by Deepa Dhanraj, one of our most important human rights uh, lawyers, uh, K.G. Kanabaran from Andhra Pradesh. And he has his bed in the documentary. His wife is speaking about him. And she says, around the time of the emergency, his closest friends who are lawyers who had helped in many, many ways, would see him in the corridors and would turn the other side. So that embodies, exemplifies, the sense of fear which is the emergency imposed on people. Sense of fear which led to a sense of isolation, saying that, you know, I can't do anything about this regime. Let me retreat into my own personal private world because otherwise I will get arrested. That sense of fear again is something which, which I think we have seen then and we see now.
0: Thanks for that, Arvind. Um, I just wanted to uh, go back to something you write. You actually quote HMC Rai and you say that how he calls the emergency and what happens, especially the act of the judiciary as a constitutional outrage. Before we step into the other aspects, can you tell us ways in which uh, the legal judgments or uh, judicial conduct in some ways left a kind of a mark that in some ways did weaken the institutional credibility within yeah. India. Can you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the point of the ADM Jabalpur judgment is we have to look at it in terms of both the majority, the minority, as well as the high court and the Supreme Court. There's a failure in terms of the Supreme Court, the majority. The high courts and the dissenting judgment, in a sense, kept that spirit of hope, a spirit of optimism that, uh, that this is not all, or kept the idea of another alternative open. I'll just put it this way that the nine high courts around the country basically held that you can look at the Maintenance of Internal Security Act and see, for example, if the detention is in accordance with that particular legislation. The high court has that power, meaning to say that if you are detained and the detention is not signed by an authority, or if you're detained and there's no evidence of any satisfaction of the detaining authority, that can be challenged, and the High Court can look into that question. What the Supreme Court did in, in, one, in a grave abdication, you get the sense of how grave the abdication of responsibility was, what the Supreme Court basically held is to say that you, we can't look into this at all. The majority basically said that once the emergency is declared, we will not look into the question of the detention or look at the legality of detention at all. Because public safety... As Justice Bhagwati put it, it was the greatest, it was the supreme concern. So that was the, the failure of the emergency in terms of the, the majority judgment. But you see even there that the high courts actually stood the ground. Supreme Court who failed us. And again here the point to remember is in today how, how does history remember the emergency if you look at the contemporary judgments, the history sees the the ADM double pool judgment as the darkest moment, as you as you rightly quoted Sir by making that particular point. And who is the hero at that moment in time is actually uh, Justice Khanna, who delivered the minority opinion, where he basically said that regardless of what the uh, of what the the executive does, the judiciary has a responsibility to ensure to look at whether the the, the actions of the executive. Are in conformity with the Constitution, and again, if you look at t- today's perspective, the the Putuswami judgment was nine judges of the Supreme Court, and where they held that the the emergency judgment, uh, the majority judgment was not right, and, and Justice Chandrachud, in, in a in a critique of his own father, basically made the point that we hold the opinion of Justice Kanna, which is a minority, in reverence and awe, and similarly, Justice, Call uh, made the point that the emergency judgment, uh, the majority needs to be buried six feet deep, or ten feet deep, I forget the number of feet deep, but that's that, that the point he made. So you get a sense that from today's perspective, we see the fact that the majority was wrong through and through. So I, the, I think the point in the sense of talking about the emergency, linking back to today, is to, tell, is to tell our judges as well that you must have a sense of historical perspective. You must see that tomorrow you'll be judged very, very differently. You must have the courage to stand up for the values of the Constitution, because today who remembers the majority in, in the ADM Double proof? We all remember Justice Khanna as the iconic figure, as a judge, as maybe one of the most important judges of the Indian Supreme Court. So we want to cultivate that
0: sense of history
1: among our judicial, judicial fraternity as well.
0: And one of the things that you speak of in the book is that you very clearly place Preventive detention and preventive detention laws as the roots of emergency. What do you mean by that? And can you walk us through that?
1: Yeah, the again, if you look at the 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 constitution, one of the anomalies in the Indian constitution in the fundamental rights chapter, Article Twenty Two of the constitution, which basically though it begins with the with the narration of some of the rights of the accused goes on to say that in the context of preventive detention, you don't have the, the right to be represented by a consul of your choice, you don't have the right to be produced before the magistrate within 24 hours, and you don't have the right to legal representation. So the, the way in which the—it's the, it's interesting that the Article 22 has been characterized by human rights activists as the undemocratic heart of the Indian Constitution. So which fundamental rights chapter in which country authorizes preventive detention as part of the fundamental rights chapter itself. So that's, in a sense, the anomaly in the Indian constitutional framework itself. Of course, there are many questions about how we interpret that. And I think the argument we have to take, take in this particular context is, on this, so of course, one uh, at this current moment, the only argument we can take, take is to say that we need to read Article 22 as narrowly as possible, and in conformity, with the other fundamental rights and that's in a sense again the dissenting opinion of justice fazal ali which makes the point that you have to read it much more narrowly you can't read it in such a such a way that you give the prerogative state the the complete control or the, or the complete authority over the lives of uh, lives lives of in, individual people so the way to understand article 22 is it's really the prerogative state at the, the prerogative state at the heart of the constitutional order so our entire effort is how do we limit the powers of the prerogative state how do we limit this untrammeled power of the state uh, using the other other uh, other other aspects of the constitutional fundamental rights chapter
0: itself um, you also quote uh, professor jan prakash uh, in the book and i actually have a question for you is that one of the points that uh, professor prakash makes in his book on emergency is that he believes that the 1975 emergency was not an anomaly, was not an aberration, but rather the roots of totalitarian and authoritarian tendencies are already grounded in the Indian constitution. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Do you believe that the emergency was, the view that there is a view that the emergency was an aberration? But then, of course, there's a view that uh, someone like Prakash holds that, perhaps the Constitution and its founding document itself had the seeds of many of these authoritarian and totalitarian tendencies. Yeah. No,
1: I think the way to address this particular question is to to get back to the question of how do we understand the Indian Constitution. If we see the Indian Constitution as a product of a struggle both, both against external domination against internal, against internal oppression, be it on grounds of caste or gender and external domination in terms of the, the British colonial regime, then we see the the Constitution is embodying a certain kind of a transformative ideal, a certain kind of a, con- a promise of transformation. But again, the point I think which, which uh, Gyan Prakash's argument seems to make is that the promise is not a promise, it's not an untrammeled promise. The promise in any way is limited through the through the way in which the, the, the limitations from 192 come in 1902 have the limited to the way in which the the emergency chapters in the, pro, in the the constitution are there so the I think I would put it differently i would i would not say that the 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 Indian Constitution is for example an authoritarian document a totalitarian document I would put it differently i'd say that the Indian Constitution within it has a space for two kinds of an opinion and our hope is that the transformative potential or the 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 viewpoint which sees the Constitution as, as a barrier of fundamental rights triumphs over the authoritarian dimensions or over the, over the dimensions give the state more power than it should have.
0: You call this, you use, you know, in PUCL in 2018, and you write about this in the book, called the Modi regime um, as giving way to a completely new order of rights violation, and they called it the undeclared emergency. You also use this language of undeclared emergency. Can you walk us through how you define this idea of undeclared emergency from the 75 emergency in the book?
1: Yeah. The, again, the, you're right about the fact that the undeclared emergency, the title, has had a strong purchase among human rights groups and among the People's Union of Civil Liberties, as well as a range of political actors as well. And the, the analogy is really this, that we've seen the untrammeled use of laws which authorize de facto and de jure preventive detention, without any kind of institutional check, operated either by the by the judiciary or by the media. So we have the uncontrolled power of the executive to detain, and that's the central dimension I see of the of the undeclared emergency. And the added dimension which I want to want to add to that particular point is the is the fact that. The undeclared emergency and the declared emergency share this dimension of a certain kind of a culture of fear, which is quite widespread. And I, I referred to this already, where you have the sense that whatever you do, you could end up getting arrested. So that sense of fear is what is pervasive, both then and and,
0: and now. You also talk about the UAPA as a symbol of the undeclared emergency and you kind of contrast it. Uh, one of the other things that you also say is that if police was the looming figure of fear during the 75 emergency, the NIA has now become the chosen agent of the state. Can you walk us through these two ideas of one, the UAPA as a symbol, but also how institutionally the NIA is now being weaponized? Yeah.
1: the With respect to the... The emergency was certified to, to seventy-seven. The, the the law which symbolized the emergency was the maintenance and General security act, which was the preventive detention law. And in a sense, bound by the framework, limited as it was, of Article 22. What we have now is really the UAPA. And I've taken I've gone a little bit into the history of the UAPA and how the UAPA initially begins as a law to law to penalize un, unlawful associations and unlawful activity and over a period of time gets transmuted into an anti-terror law. And the problem with this transmission into anti-terror law is a, is a grave kind of interference with the procedural provisions, in particular with respect to the bail provisions. And today, under the UAPA, you can be detained for any number of years without, without trial happening and without you being entitled to bail. And we have had, we have, uh, during a PUCL uh, conference of over three days, there were shocking testimonies from really around the country of people being detained for inordinately long periods of time. Again, you go back to the preventive detention laws, the, the maximum period of detention would be one year or in the colonial era, two years. Under the UAPA, we have records of people being detained for 11 years before before being acquitted by the by the trial court itself and 11 years is a long long time and so what that leads us leads us to is today we have what we would call the anti terror laws which is the UAPA operating as a de jure de, uh, de sorry as a de facto preventive detention law though it is not in law it's not it's not titled as a preventive detention law it functions as a far more effective preventive detention law than even the than even the, the, the maintenance of Internal Security Act and the other preventive detention laws. And if you want an evidence for this, we see that in the context of Kashmir, where there, there's a sudden transition from the use of the Preventive Detention Act in Kashmir to the use of the UAPA. Because that is the law which allows you to detain people for a longer period of time without any kind of a significant challenge. That's part one of your question. The second part, of course, is the is the role of the uh, the the National Investigation Agency. Again, if we see the 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 NIA Act was passed during the Congress regime, and but it's been instrumentalized and utilized to the greatest possible extent during the uh, during the current Modi, Modi Modi administration. There are a range of ways in which the NIA Act departs from the the the, the protections under the under the criminal procedure under the criminal procedure code. But the I think the point which of the greatest significance is the fact that the NIA is a centralized agency, which is even more powerful than the than the than the CBI. If you look at it even in terms of the appointment, the CBI appointment is is by the leader of the opposition and leader of the the, the Chief Justice as well as the, as well as the Prime Minister, whereas the NIA is completely under the authority of the central 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 <coughs> central government, and the the way. The NIA has functioned, again, the the PUCL studies indicate that a majority of the cases of arrest are really arrests where there's there's no activity which can be called terrorist. It's what is called associated activity, which are deemed to be terrorist activity. So, by clamping down so severely on the question of freedom of speech and expression, the NIA is 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 generating a climate of fear. The other very very important point which has to be noted about the NIA is if you look at the figures and the statistics in in Parliament, the claim is the NIA has a, over a ninety percent conviction rate. So we were very curious about this, and ninety percent conviction rate is very high rate. How did they come to this figure? And there's a uh, there's a seminar by by Justice Alam, a former former Supreme Court judge, where he makes a point that the 90% conviction rate is based purely on the fact that uh, in that particular year, if there are 80 cases, 70 cases in which convictions have been achieved, but the pending 300 cases, you ignore the pending cases and look at only the the cases which in that particular year, and you you say it's ninety percent. That's one part of the story. The second part of the story, which is actually a very troubling part of the story, of why they have such a very high conviction rate. Uh, okay, even if we take this as, uh, even if you take this, this 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 question, and say that you know the conviction rate is much. It can't be high as than ninety. It comes down to say twenty seven percent. Even then. The, why? How did they get to 27 percent? And here again, we need more research on this, and we need to do a little more work on this. But what the 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 what the indication seems to be is that the NIA strategy is keep people in detention for as long period of time as possible. And then, when you're in detention for five years, you're told that uh, if you plead guilty, we'll let you go. If we don't plead guilty, Suffer another five years in jail. So you, the accused is presented in effect with the Hobson's choice. The accused in many cases takes up the the question, say, you know, okay, fine, let's let's plead guilty and just get released now. And there is evidence for this. If in particular, if you look at the uh, couple of judgments where the court has made the point, court has excoriated or made comments about the NIA's endless list of witnesses and the fact that the NIA is not. Is not, is, not, is not moving forward with the, with the investigation. So then that leads us to the question, is the NIA strategy, is the premier investigating agency with a fantastic conviction rate, etc., is the investigation strategy basically this? Keep people in jail as long as possible and then tell them that, you know, you make a choice. You want to be in jail for another 10 years or will you, will you get released? For them, it's a win-win because they, they basically get a high conviction rate. So this, of course, needs more work but this is the hypothesis to which we're going.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, for those of us joining us uh, in the middle, uh, we are in conversation with Arvind Narain, and who we are discussing is new and important book, India's Undeclared Emergency, Constitutionalism and the Politics of Resistance. We already have uh, a couple of audience questions that I'm going to be uh, putting to Arvind. now. Uh, we still have time for a few more questions. So if you want, please send me your questions either tagging the Polis Project or my account. Um, Arvind, we have an audience question. Uh, One of the questions is, this is from Archana Srinivasan, and Archana Srinivasan asks, is there value for the Indian citizen to still have faith in the judiciary, especially the Supreme Court of India, given that the Supreme Court of India, till this day, hasn't acted on issues before it, especially the issue of uh, Jammu and Kashmir, the bk 16 cases, And also, arresting of young, um, the question is quite long, so I'm going to kind of um, abridge it. And of course, they list a long list of cases that the Supreme Court hasn't addressed, including the um, violence against the anti-CAA protesters. So the question is, can an Indian citizen uh, still believe and take solace in institutions like the Supreme Court of India?
1: Yeah, no, I think the way to answer that question is to say that fundamentally, I think there's no option or alternative out of a larger organizing and people really getting together. And the opinion expressed by people in a larger space has an impact because judges at the end of the day are, are a part of society and part of the way society thinks. And if you look, at think, at, I think, again, this will be my hypothesis, I would say that the kind of severe backlash which Justice Bobde's uh, tenure got was an important one. Because it lets all other judges know that this is the way history history will remember you. So I think our our imperative is to continue to have faith. Not faith in the sense of faith that, that judges will deliver today or tomorrow, but faith that through our struggle and through our movements, we can impose a level of accountability of the Supreme Court to the Constitution of India.
0: We have another question from Kashmir. Uh, this one is about the Anuradha was of India. The question is, the Supreme Court of India hasn't still dealt with Article 370 or passed any decision on that. But in the Anuradha Basan case, do you think that that court order was, in effect, an effective relief? They're asking if yeah. you think about the Anuradha Basan. You actually talk about this,
1: most
0: um, yeah. yeah. of you. In in the book, uh, Arvind does talk about this, but I'll I'll let you respond to this
1: uh, question. Yeah, thank you. I think that's an important question because I guess also part of a conversation is that you sometimes you end up uh, stressing on points which are very, very important to stress. And I might come across as a Pollyanna and kind of optimist of the court, but actually I'm very, very critical. Of the of the role of the court in the last uh, last four chief justices, and in particular, the idea that you know what you, what what is mentioned by the by the by the, the by the person, which is the idea that the court has not taken cognizance of a range of issues of which they must they should have, and three seventy article three seventy is obviously a significant one of that entire entire series of issues which they which are completely failed. The, the migrant issue was the other, other issue in which they completely failed to address significant significant gaps, as it were. And uh, in that context, how do we see the Anuradha Basin judgment? And it's interesting that the Anuradha Basin judgment, the, uh, the one of the judges was uh, the current chief justice, who was, who, who, was also, who was also on the bench, and he delivered the judgment just, I think, a couple of months before his elevation as the, as, as, as the chief justice the the judgment itself, if you read it, the the principles it laid, lays down are fairly important in terms of the the idea that the doctrine of proportionality should apply, the fact that the that uh, the that the, the executive has an obligation to be to to be transparent about the basis on which it's making its it, the orders orders with respect to internet shutdown. That's the important part of what what it says. But I think the gap is there in between what it says and what it does, and the idea that the Supreme Court outsources its part to decide the constitutionality of the of the government actions to a committee constituted by by the government is a is an abdication of its constitutional responsibility, because I think in a, in the, in the end we look at a judgment as being valuable when delivers relief at the ground level and using that particular lens the anuradha basin judgment is a failure and the judgment which follows it which is the foundation for for media freedom which looks at the adjudicates on the question of the 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 non non, non of 3g and 3, or 3g and 4g in in the kashmir context is even stronger application where again they they outsource to the committee at this is the anuradha basin judgment the outsourcing to the committee committee uh, by the executive they at least they laid on the principles in which the committee should adjudicate, adjudicate including the principle of proportionality. But at the foundation of media freedom, even the question of the principles, are further diluted in in that particular judgment. So on the whole, I think with respect to the to the way the Indian Supreme Court has dealt with Kashmir, it's been a it's been a case of complete application of a constitutional responsibility. Uh,
0: thank you for that. Um, we have, um, Arvind, we have a lot of questions coming in. I know that we are going to, uh, we're already close to uh, the 40 minute mark. Are you available to take more questions?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. no problem.
0: Um, so we have uh, another question, uh, also an audience question. Uh, this is from Jay. He says Is there evidence that the UAPA and the terrible choice presented to suspects held without trial is disproportionately applied to Muslims? Minorities
1: uh, and other minorities, such as Dalits. I'd like to answer this question with a little more research, and I don't have those kind of figures. But I think the what the information and the materials which we have before us, in terms of the case, the range of cases, seem to indicate that it's disproportionate. I think one place to go to this is in terms of uh, if you look at if you read Josie Josie Joseph's book on the on the on the secret state, on the, the sense you get, again, is of a disproportionate use against, against Muslim minorities. And the, the, again, in terms of the conversations within the, within the PUCL or meetings held by the PUCL, you get a clear sense that the UAPA is applied disproportionately against the, against the Muslim minority. That I think there is, we can, we can say that without, that quite strongly, that based on the evidence that we have, that yeah, that's true.
0: Uh, we have another question, and this is from uh, Bilal Ghani, and he asks, How is this undeclared emergency de- different from the one that was declared in
1: 1975? Yeah, I think I've I tried addressing this particular this particular question. The 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 current moment, I think the point I, I really want to make, which I just we didn't get a point to make, maybe I'll make it now, is that the distinction between now and then, one declared emergency, the other is an undeclared emergency. The other distinction is in this current moment, the, okay, let's put it this way, the declared the emergency, the support as well as people was concerned, was at best, as Gyan Prakash indicates, sullen. People were not enthusiastic supporters of the 75 to 77 emergency. The, the current moment though, you see a certain kind of a base of popular support as far as the regime is concerned. That's the first point. Second point would be the current regime is not just interested in state power alone, it is also interested in remaking society. And we see that in particular in terms of the, the current provenance of the anti, anti-love jihad laws, the anti-beef laws, as well as the, as well as the, the Citizenship Amendment Act. So there's a, there's a regime today has a very, very different Im- Im- implication in terms of what, what what, I was describing using the Juan Lin's framework as really a movement towards totalitarianism. Again, by totalitarianism, totalitarianism, what do you mean? You mean a regime which is not just interested in state power alone, which is interested in the remaking of society, whose power is supplemented by the power of the mob, which acts in support of, its support of the regime, which is based in a certain form of popular ideology, which in this case is, uh, is, is Hindutva. So it, it's a far more challenging time in terms of the period of the undeclared emergency, as the undeclared emergency is not about the state alone. It's also about remaking society, and it's about, it's about, the, about the mob, which, which is today inherits a certain legacy of both nationalism and lawlessness.
0: Thank you. In the book, you quote um, from India's dictator, the book India's first dictatorship, where you call emergency as a species of authoritarianism. And in the book, you also very clearly write how today the power is concentrated in the hands of two, very similar to the emergency. Um, but you also talk about erosion of institutions and norms. Can you talk about? Is the you know, how do you see this erosion of institutional norms and structures? Do you see this as a long process that started around the emergency, or do you see it as something different within the Modi's regime?
1: Yeah. No, I think this is an important question because the in a sense, the similarities between the the declared emergency and the undeclared emergency, the 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 question of the dilution of norms. And ways of functioning by the state was there both in the 75 to 77 and now. So there is a continuity in terms of the fact that the uncontrolled part of the set to the leadership, which implies that in some you you give a go-by to the norms which would otherwise constrain the functioning of the top leadership. That's very, very similar. I think the difference is really the entire question with respect to the basing in an ideology and the the question of the, 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 rise, the rise of the mob in the movement towards a certain kind of a Hindu supremacist state. That's the difference which we see today. Uh,
0: we have another question, and this one, um, um, I'm, I'm rephrasing the question. You talk about entrenching Hindutva within Indian law. What do you mean by that? The
1: three points I want to make in that, in that particular context is that today it's become possible as a project of the state to entrench a Hindu of philosophy within the, within the terms of the law. And the three laws we have to look to one would be the, the, the Citizenship Amendment Act, the, the the and the proposed NPR and the NRC, all of which go on to, to clearly put down the supremacy of the of the Hindu majority vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis the, vis-a-vis the Muslim, Muslim minority. That's one nature one, one, one form of laws. Second would be the, the laws which began in UP and now traveling around, or really around the country, coming down to our own state, Karnataka, which is the, the anti-conversion and then what so-called anti-love jihad laws, which attempt to control individual intimate choices people make with respect to who they choose to marry or who or the faith they choose to practice. And the third is the tightening of the, of, the, of the laws with respect to the cattle slaughter laws, which again have moved from UP to a range of states, including coming down to Karnataka now. So these are the ways in which this idea of second-class citizenship is getting entrenched in the legal framework and limiting the kind of choices which individual people otherwise
0: have. Um, I wanted to quickly talk about BK16, how do you view this current moment? Um, Of course, we have um, the very, very um, targeted harassment of those on the front line. We saw the sad case of what happened to Father Stan Swami while Sudha Bharadwaj is now out briefly. We have others uh, still incarcerated. What do you see as the next future trajectories for those incarcerated? Do you see this as something long-term? How does one take account of this moment, given that all of them are still, except uh, Sudha Baradzwaj, all of them remain incarcerated?
1: Yeah, I I think one way to understand the Biki 16 question is to try and see what are the the forms of activism which the state is finding so troubling. And there the distinction I make, at least in in the book, is look at the forms of activism, including, the, including the, the Dalit activism, which is really about, about putting forward the idea, Ambedkar's idea, that if Hindu Raj comes to this country, it will be the greatest calamity that this country will ever face, rights activism, then we have legal activism, then we have intellectuals such as uh, Varavara Rao, uh, who, who have been articulating uh, concerns, which again the state finds very, very troubling. So the question you're asking— is the BK-16 are now in jail. How much longer will they continue to be in jail? And I think there's a question which we, we asked ourselves uh, a year and a half ago, when the campaign to free the BK-16 really began. And in a sense, we see mm-hmm. that the, some part or the result of that particular campaign is the fact that Sudha Paradwaj is now, is, now, is, now, is now out on bail. So I think the only answer to the question is we'll redouble our struggle, and ensure that we we get the the BK, the other other b k sixteen out as well, and in fact, if you there's a there's a marvelous quotation by uh whatever in his poem he says a political prisoner does not know the meaning of despair; he only knows the meaning of hope. so by looking at what the b k sixteen in prison are saying, I think we just have to say we'll redouble our campaign and an effort to ensure that the b k sixteen are finally free.
0: Um, one of the things you do in the book, and it was, um, I mean, there was a moment that I saw you, you quote Kautam Navlaka, um, you know, um, asking when Kautam Navlaka writes, saying, Do please listen to Leonard Cohen sing the anthem and remember. And, you know, there's a crack, a crack is everything, that's how the light gets in. So, the most important part of your book, according to me, is also the fact that the book ends with the idea of assistance. You talk about the history of resistance as if that's something that is more innate than the history of of authoritarianism or totalitarianism. How do you see the history of resistance? And and also I like the fact that the chapter is called What is to be Done. So how do you see the history of resistance? And how do you see this resistance moving forward?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said over here. And the the again the as you indicated in the chapter what is to be done is really le- what Lenin in his in his in his in his article in his in his book had called what is to be done. But again my point would be that it's really not I'm not saying what is to be done as much as documenting what is being done. You know, and that's really where where I'm deriving the sense of a uh, if you want to call it struggle from. And here one uh, one of the key people I keep going back to in the, in the book throughout, is, is the thinking of uh, one of the people who, who was a part of a totalitarian regime and resisted a to totalitarian regime, which is Hannah Arendt and the, and the book uh, Origins of Totalitarianism. A couple of points I'll make from there which might be useful in terms of thinking of resistance in the time going forward. One point she makes is the imperative of a totalitarian regime is to produce what she calls a state of isolation. By isolation, she means a state where people can't come together to act together. So once you produce a state of isolation, the state can enjoy untrammeled power and authority. So our first imperative is to really challenge isolation. How do you challenge isolation? You challenge isolation by people getting together. Be it in small groups, be it in protests, be it in demonstrations, be it in meetings. But people getting together and saying that and breaking the sense of fear. Right? because what is the imperative isolation again it's a very powerful book where she makes the point that the the what isolation does is it makes all protest seem meaningless and she says that is the murder of the moral moral in human beings of the moral of the, of the of the moral being so our imperative really how do we recover the moral, the morality of, of human beings or how do we recover the fact that we can act together that's the, the first way in which we begin to challenge this kind of a regime and i guess you know this that the fear is very widespread people everywhere have a deep sense of fear and i think we should derive a sense of hope and optimism from really our wonderful colleagues and and people who are, who are fighting this this current moment in all parts of the country, and many of them who are in jail have been such sources of inspiration, including the BK16. So that's one part of the of the of the struggle against this this kind of a uh, this kind of a regime. There are many other dimensions, but uh, uh, Sujata, so I I don't want to keep going on. I'll just stop with that.
0: Um, so we have another question. This is from Professor Ravinder Kaur. Um, and I think it's, it's quite telling that a lot of questions that we are getting directly goes back to the role of courts and constitution. Here, Professor Ravinder Kaur uh, is putting this question to you, and she says, courts and constitution are increasingly seen as spheres that would restore the progressive values in India, progressive values of India. But can one continue to take this view? What if the law is changed? or the very institutional edifice is altered all within the democratic majoritarian framework. And I think this is something that a lot of us have been thinking about is that that every single day, if the Hindu Rashtra, uh, in my, I believe the Hindu Rashtra is already here, along with it, a very specific framework, a majoritarian framework. So as Ravinder Kaur, Professor Kaur says, what, what happens then? Can we still continue to take this view? That the constitution can restore proper values.
1: Yeah. See, in in some one way of thinking about this, comparative, comparative examples, and one one place I did go back to in terms of trying to understand the contemporary moment is actually to two places. One is a, a a really really interesting book by Ernst Frankel called The Dual State, on um, and when Frankel is a German. Jewish lawyer practicing in, in Nazi Germany, at the height of Nazi Germany. And the argument that he puts forward is he says he argues against the idea that even Nazi Germany was a totalitarian black box. He says that because of the imperative of capitalism, etc., rule of law at at some at some levels was important. So throughout Nazi Germany was what he called a dual state. And his point is our effort as lawyers was at every point in time to ensure that people who are in the prerogative state, which is the untrammeled part of the executive, we try and get them, shift them to the normative state where some measure of rule of law uh, does do, does apply. That's one kind of an example to help you think through and say, hey, you know, are we, are we within courts, a space where there's no space for resistance? Are we, in a sense, there, there are two dimensions to the nature of the state. There is the normative state, there is the prerogative state, And our imperative, at all points in time, is to defend the normative state against the ravages of the prerogative state. As long as the constitution is in place, we have the normative state. As long as the UAPA and laws such as that in Article 22, uh, Clause 2 onwards are there, 3 onwards are there, we have the prerogative state. So our point is, how do we preserve the normative state vis-à-vis the prerogative state? That's one point. The second example we went to, actually, is... uh, looking at the, at the question of lawyering in the context of Israel and Palestine. And there we found this really fantastic work by uh, 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 colleagues and friends in, in, in Israel Palestine. And at point, they've had a series of defeats, right? Every time you go to court, you come back with a defeat. And the point they—the they, they, question they get asked again is, why do you do this? And their point is that each time we go to court— And each time, our point is to produce an indictment of the Israeli occupation. That's our objective. And by keeping on doing that, we keep alive the the space for rule of law. By keeping alive the space for rule of law, we know that at one time, the cracks that we 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 are putting in the the regime will deepen and will widen. So we have to keep this effort alive. And I don't think we should give up on the idea of the normative state. But understanding very clearly that there is a prerogative state which which is threatening to overwhelm. The normative state completely.
0: Uh, Arun, thank you for that. Uh, we are well past our 40-minute mark. Um, so uh, before we bring this conversation to an end, Arun, do you have any concluding remarks about the book that you would like to make?
1: Yeah, no, the, the only remark I'd make is, I don't see the book as important in and of itself. I see the book as important if it's able to generate a certain sense of a conversation and it's able to generate a certain sense of a solidarity. Because I think the important point we have, the important point which we have today and which we need to struggle towards is re-establishing these values of solidarity so that people get together and talk to e- each other in, in greater and greater numbers and build and leave that sense of fear aside. And that's the very, very important. So if the book in that sense is a goad is a, is a to people exploring their own ideas. Again, I'll make two points actually. The book is only really about two things, right? One is, how do you understand the contemporary and what the answers are provided to? People can have very different answers. They can say, we completely disagree with you. But I think we should ask the question, how do we understand the contemporary moment? The second is, okay, we have understood the contemporary moment. How do we now challenge what I call the undeclared emergency, or the slouching to, or the moment of to totalitarianism? Again, people can have very different answers to the question that I'm asking. But I think people should be asking these questions. And start start thinking of these answers. So I think if the book is able to generate that kind of conversation, that'll be a great starting point. Arvind, thank you so much for joining us for
0: the conversation today. For those of you who joined, Arvind's book, India's Undeclared Emergency, Constitutionalism and the Politics of Resistance, is now available in bookstores next to you. Uh, Polis Project is a not-for-profit, which means that we are supported entirely by our viewers, readers and listeners. If you like the work we do, please consider supporting us. Uh, Over the next year, we will be bringing more conversations to you live, uh, from some of the smartest, most intelligent people thinking and working about important issues. So I hope you will join for other future sessions as well. Thank you so much. And Arvind, again, thank you so much and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Sushita. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Thank you.